This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to the New Ethiopian Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porritt, and I'm joined by Steve Anglesey. Hello, Snowflakes. Hello, Richard. Hi Steve, how are you doing? I am well. How are you? I'm good. I'm actually, I'm actually in my flat recording this today. Oh, that's that's exciting. I know. Um, um, I thought so I'd, I, I thought I'd come and do it from from Porrit Acres. So here Porrit I am. Acres. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm coming at you live from uh, Nottingham. Ooh, have you gone deep undercover into COVID Central? I've got into. I've. I've. I've I'm into. T- I'm undercover in Tier Two. <laughs> Under the covers from Tier Three. <laughs> What's um, the feeling like up there? Actually, interestingly, because I, you know, because I spend most of my time in, well, all my time, in actual fact, in the east of England currently, and obviously we're still in Tier. I get these mixed up. One, tier um, one. Yeah. The, the the low the lowest um, you know level of alert. What What's the feeling in Nottingham? Uh, I would say there is some trepidation. Um, mm. the, uh, the city centre um, is a lot quieter than normal um, and um, where we are, um, which is out in the, well, not quite in the suburbs, it's, um, it's, it's uh, just out of town. Um, uh, are, the, the local pub is, is, is closed of its own volition. Right. Uh, for a few weeks um, while they try and work out how to, to make things pay. Um, and um, there's, there's a, you know, there's a, a fair bit of trepidation, as I can imagine there is across the country. And, and people listening to this now will um, will uh, be experiencing these kind of things. We are in, in sort of uncertain times, aren't we? And the stuff that was announced 
by Rishi Sunak on Thursday seems to indicate that will, you know, the extra help for the hospitality industry and stuff like that seems to indicate that we are going to be in. Um, well, it, there's there's not a there's not a rosy ending in sight, is there? Basically, do you think do you think anywhere is going to stay out of a sort of full lockdown? Or do you think we're all headed the same way? Well. I'm coming back to I'm coming back to Norwich. <laughs> You're escaping. <laughs> <The weekend>. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, look, anywhere, anywhere that's got a student population is. I mean, you can see that the cases are rising everywhere in the country, aren't, mm-hmm. aren't they? Regardless of of what is going to happen, anywhere with a large student population is rising larger than than anywhere. It seems to be rising larger than anywhere else. The schools going, having children at school has certainly had some impact, hasn't it? I mean, you know, there are you, there are much more learned uh, places to to talk about this stuff than this than this podcast. But it does, um, but it does seem to me that you know the argument now is appears to be, you know, about the 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 the, the severity of the measures rather than whether this is a, a, yeah. a real problem and we need to, you know, either keep stuff open or whatever. I, I mean, we need to, you know, we, we need to have a proper national strategy, I think, about this. The direction um, of, the direction of, of travel is, is fairly clear, isn't it, I think, for, yeah, for everyone? It, I mean, I am supportive. It of... be, it's a nice upbeat start to the podcast. <laughs> with people well, so, we might as well get this out of the way now before we get sort of jump headlong into into the into the, the news and beyond because obviously the the chancellor's revised scheme i mean i think he's necessary because i mean i wrote a piece yesterday saying actually you know our business is better off in tier three than tier two well it seems to me that they they have been better off in tier three than tier two um and then the you know the the, the weird stuff about you know i got a God, I've never been to the Caprice in London, so I don't know. Um, so I don't know how I'm, I've managed to get on the Caprice's mailing list. But I got a. a best, <laughs> is I it Caprice the restaurant or is it Caprice the model? Caprice, yeah, no, it's Caprice the restaurant. I've never been to either Caprice the model or Caprice the restaurant. Didn't she date Tony Adams? I think she did, didn't she? Yeah. Um, uh, and Caprice the restaurant was. Um, the uh, Paul Raymond, I think I'm right in saying that Paul Raymond, the um, the sort of the pawn baron of Soho, used to live upstairs from um, from the Caprice, and once made on the night, the day that Princess Margaret died, he made a memorable appearance on the shop floor. He came down in his dressing gown uh, with a hairnet on to tell people to show shut up and show some respect. He was a massive royalist, uh, was Paul Raymond. But yeah, he lived above the Caprice. But I got a weird email from the Caprice saying, um, don't worry, you can still come for dinner here with more with people who don't live in your household. Just say, it basically said, as long as it's a business meeting, nudge, nudge, and all of that, you'll be, <laughs> you'll be fine. Wow. Um, so there's, yeah, there's, there's very, you know, it's the, the bizarre sort of loophole. See you down the Caprice. So we're all going down the Caprice for a business meeting. Do you know yeah. what? We should we should record the pod in the Caprice next week. Yeah, absolutely. Coming at you live from the Caprice with Caprice. <laughs> with Caprice. Yeah. Wow, that'd be great. Well, I mean, I, I haven't fully digested exactly what the revised scheme. I think it, it, it looks like employers are going to pay less in tier two and staff come at fewer hours. Um, so they are. I mean, it's it's fairly big fairly big stuff but um i haven't fully digested it yet but i think 
we have to welcome any of these any of these um, measures that that support business. Of course, um, yeah. I mean, I think that I think the message of it is that the employees aren't going to aren't going to do um, aren't going to get any more money, but the government is going to pay for more of it than they were previously going. To pay. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's because I wonder if the news for employers, not rather than employees. Please, yeah. I think um, it feels to me. I was looking at the graphs from the. Uh, the press conference, which was on uh, Tuesday evening, I think, I was looking at the graphs and stuff that, that Number Ten send out, which are beautiful. I love a graph, and they are beautiful, if not harrowing at the same time. But um, and it does seem that the the rate of infections is going up in younger people, which would make sense, university, schools, etc. Um, but obviously, the the rate of deaths is not not as high, and obviously, every single death, absolute tragedy. Uh, you know, that kind of goes without saying. Um, but I do wonder if the second wave is going to be even more about the economic impact than the first wave was. Yes, yes. I mean, there's, yeah, I, I think so. And I think that fuels a lot of the arguments, doesn't it? Um, and whether the, um, you know, and and then also the the sort of the, the non-COVID deaths that are caused by, yeah, yeah. Um, that are caused by, um, you know, GPs not seeing people, et cetera, et cetera, hospitals not admitting as many people, people being reluctant to go to A&E, yeah. um, as, we, uh, as we found out. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, anyway, there we go. That was the bit of breaking news, um, <laughs> or broken news. Uh, we will do some more news immediately, and then we've got two special guests, I think, haven't we, Steve? Tell us about our guests. Uh, we have got um, we've got Charlie Connolly. Um, Love Charlie to Matt with us. Charlie is the New European uh, newspapers. Um, well, he's he's our I was going to say our literary correspondent, but he's our, our, our book correspondent. Really, he's an author. He's a podcaster. A fantastic uh, guy. Also, he writes the Great European Lives section in the back of the New European, which I know is a lot of people's favourite bit uh, of the new european uh, apartment. I'll tell you a little story about Charlie right I I, I love Charlie to bits. think my column is the best bit which I love Charlie to bits he's I love reading his stuff he's beloved in our office and he's been with the new european for a long time there was one time when current editor Jasper Coppin was off and I was basically in charge of putting the paper together so commissioning stuff and Charlie sends a list of great european lives through and um and he says, you know, which one do you think? And I and I was in a mad rush doing something like really like up against it for whatever reason. And I looked down this list and I saw the word Ferrari. And I said, oh, do Ferrari. That'll be great. Everyone will, everyone will love that. And he went, yeah, I thought that'd be good as well. A bit quirky. And I thought, well, I don't know why he thinks it's quirky anyway. And then he filed his great European lives. And it was a brilliant piece on Lola Ferrari. The, um, you might remember her from uh, Euro Trash. And uh, it wasn't what we were expecting. Let's put it like that. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't what the what normally uh, what the normal great European lives are. Great art, great literary characters or artists or whatever. And then we had Lola Ferrari, but it was a brilliant piece. Um, and then we've got uh, Liz Gerard as well. Um, so Liz Gerard will be uh, with us, and she's going to talk about one of the great phenomenons of this year so far. And there's been plenty of them. The uh, the rise of the Daily Star, which is really ripping up trees, in my opinion. And I love talking about tabloid newspapers. So uh, we can expect um, some interesting chat there about the Daily Star, who is, uh, which I'm sure you've all seen their fantastic Dominic Cummings cut out mask. In fact, if you've got one, put it on now and tweet us uh, a picture of it. 
Um, and then we will, of course, crown a Brexiteer of the week um, after we've done all that, after Matt Withers has spoken to Charlie. So should we jump into the news first of all, Steve? Well, we should talk about, we should talk about the trade talk, shouldn't we? Which, yeah. I mean, obviously we sort of said last week we appeared to have taken our ball home and, um, and all of that, and we sort of said, you know, it's, it's another, another self-imposed Boris Johnson deadline, which Boris Johnson is, is going to have to um, is going to have to um, miss. And sure enough, um, intensive talks starting again. Um, there is, of course, the pathetic, the usual pathetic attempt by the Brexiteers to say that this is a cave in by the EU. And, and uh, you know, I mean, little more pathetic than Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, at the best of times, but Jacob Rees-Mogg saying that uh, Michel Barnier has decided he might come and talk to us on Trafalgar Day, which seems to have a certain historic resonance. I mean, these are, you know, I, I would like there to be, uh, I, I would, you know, we, we desperately need a trade deal and the EU desperately needs a, some kind of trade deal as well. Let's not beat around the bush, but let's not portray this as um, yeah. as some kind of great uh patriotic victory um, as people like David Frost and uh, and Jacob Rees-Mogg are trying. Um, yeah, another fake deadline, you know, the real deadline, as I think we said before, is, is going to be in, I think it's the 15th of November, mid-November. That is when, you know, if we haven't got a deal by then, then we won't be able to, you know, the, 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 the whatever is, is settled won't be able to go through the EU Parliament and our Parliament in time. So something needs to be done by the 15th of November. Um, if it isn't done by then, I still think there'll be some kind of memorandum or something, won't there? Some some yes. kind of general agreement um, that uh, that we could sort of shout about and then they'll start negotiating again. So, you so know. Do you, are you um, encouraged, a little bit more encouraged this week than you were last week uh, or the week before? Do you think well, that this is a, a sort of move, a, a move towards more sort of sensible... Um, not rhetoric, but a, a, a more sensible position on both sides. Well, when you hear the number 10 spokesman saying the deal is definitely dead, um, you know, there's there's no chance of a deal, which which I think was said on Wednesday or Thursday last week, um, then you did start, then you do start to worry. I'm sure that something, um, I'm sure that something will happen. Um, what's interesting now, though, is that the, you know, the, the remnants of the Brexit party and the, the, you know, some of the ERG are now on manoeuvres, aren't there? And aren't they? And um, you just wonder what a reaction. I mean, I was reading something in the Telegraph by Alexandra Phillips, the former MEP, extremely hardline uh, member of the Brexit Party, who was suggesting that this was all a great betrayal, and um, and and Boris Johnson was about to stitch up Brexiteers. Maybe that will start to raise its ugly head once more. Um, so uh, we must wait and see, but I, you know, I think it is. Uh, well, I think that so. I think something will happen. Mm. Um, I think something will happen. It's just whether Boris Johnson has got the guts to face down people like Dominic Cummings and face down people like Nigel Farage. Who knows? Um, I, I guess. Uh, I guess. I mean, it seems to me that Number Ten's negotiating strategy is quite similar with. Um, with the North, as we'll get onto that a little bit later, as it is with the EU. 
Yeah, well, it is. Yeah, I mean, this is the this is part of the problem, isn't it? That that the government face, and we can talk about this because I know we're going to talk about Andy Burnham in a minute, but um, probably after we speak to Liz. But I just think that the, I mean, the government are at war constantly. Yeah, as as Donald Trump has been um, during his four years, and it just gets extremely wearing after a while, doesn't it? I think yeah. the constant state of war is wearing on your own troops as well as other troops. Um, Do you know what though? It's, there, is just, it, there is just conflict. Um, but it's a very, it's a, it's a tried and tested, and often successful political strategy. Everyone needs a bogeyman. Um, uh, every politician needs a bogeyman. Um, I mean, we've, it's, a, it's a real um, American political trope, isn't it? They find someone. Every president will find some evil foreign leader who's, who's desperately trying to take over the world, even if even if that threat is it, it, just a, a, a perceived threat is good for votes. I'm afraid. Well, that's that's true. But I mean, in the case of but in the case of our government, it's anything that moves is our enemy. Well, it's the BBC, it's the church, <laughs> it's the civil service, it's you know the, the, the new European podcast. Manchester United footballers, <laughs> it's 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 just everybody, isn't it? And um, you know, and okay, Donald Trump might win, well win re-election again. I'm touching a large lump of wooden desks um, as I say that, but he might well win it again. But the fact is that you know he he was at war with everybody for the first two years, and then at the first chance that. Um, that Americans had to, to vote against him. They voted against him quite, quite um, you know, and, and made his life extremely difficult. And the last yeah. year and a half, he's been completely neutralised. Um, and I think that, um, I, I think, you know, I mean, look, we've not got long now, have we, until... We've not got long now till the Scottish elections. We've not got long now until the, the next lot of local elections and a constant state of war. Um, which which other... I don't think is a particularly good thing. Which other um, political movement famously was at, was at constant war? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, let's 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 not, get let's not go down there. I tell you, what is weird is doing this without knowing what happened at the because you're listening to this on on Friday or over the weekend, and we're recording it on Thursday, so we don't know what happened. Um, during the presidential debate, which, of course, was on the last presidential debate, which was on Thursday night. Well, what I will tell you is what I can absolutely guarantee is that, um, and, I, and I as well scoff at everyone, whatever side of politics they're from, bringing up um, Orwell's great novel, of course. But um, there'll be more than two minutes of hate, won't there, at the presidential uh, debate? There'll be more yes, like an absolutely. hour, I think. <laughs> absolutely. Um, you know, I... I and, and it's it's kind of, um, I mean, if you've been watching the Trump documentary that's uh, that's on the iPlayer now and was on BBC Two, you'll know that you know Rudy Giuliani takes a huge amount of credit. It gives himself a huge amount of credit for a stunt that he pulled during the last debate with Hillary Clinton, where um, where women who'd accused Bill Clinton of um, various misdemeanors. Uh, were invited to the debate, and the idea was this: this would neutralise um, uh, neg the negative impact of the the, the Trump, the, the tape of Trump um, saying, talking about grabbing women by um, their genitalia and stuff like that, which really should have seen him off. Um, 
and then of course we got this amazing news about um, Sasha Baron Cohen's new film and the, the the scene in it where Rudy Giuliani. Oh, spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Is I mean it's all over now, isn't it? It's it's over everywhere. But um, in Sasha Baron Cohen's follow up to Borat, uh, which is out now, uh, Rudy Giuliani seen reaching into his trousers. Uh, while reclining on the bed in the presence of the actor playing Borat's daughter, who is posing as a TV journalist for a fake news uh, conservative news programme. Giuliani drinks scotch with her, coughs, fails to socially distance, uh, agrees to eat a bat with his interviewer, and then uh, goes back to her bedroom, uh, the bedroom of a hotel suite, uh, which is rigged with concealed cameras. Giuliani can be seen lying back on the bed, fiddling with his untucked shirt and reaching into his trousers. Um, there you go. And he said that he was simply tucking his trousers in, to which Donald Trump said, "I have." he tweeted, I've tucked my trousers in on many occasions. Which Best I trouser tucker of all time. I've, I've, no one tucks <laughs> in a trouser like me. Um, and I think it's... Are you a tucker in there? I, I too have tucked my trousers in. <laughs> I don't think there's anyone who's not their trousers in. Whether they t- have chosen to do it while in the presence of a, of a, um, <laughs> in a in a sort of rented hotel room with a, an attractive. Have you lady. ever had an embarrassing tucking in moment? Uh, I can't imagine. I've, I've not been interrupted by Sasha Baron Cohen <laughs> while tucking in my trousers. I would say that that would be the would be the, um, the the sort of the acid test. Is it um, because I is untucked? <laughs> so it's it's weird, isn't it? So we don't know what Trump did. I mean, I I am guessing that he started an answer, interrupted himself, then he said, "Let no, let me finish." Then he interrupted himself again, and then he got cut off by the moderator for agreeing with himself. Well, um, I, loved him, could... I, I loved him dancing. He's, yeah, I think he, he'll probably do his dancing again. Well, do you know what? There is, poli- there's political, um, there, there, there is political precedent for this, isn't there? Because you remember, of course, Theresa May, Theresa May's best moment as Prime Minister was well, when I she danced. That, I predicted that she would dance at the conference. <laughs> you did, you and did. She, did. she did dance at the conference. So I make- was there in the hall and she came out dancing and I remember very clearly picking up my phone and... Sending you a message going, oh my god, you yeah, were right. She's she's I was, I was watching. I was watching. Yeah. That was brilliant. I'm doing the dance right now. I think we can Amazing. all. Amazing. Uh, hey, they what the glorious days of Theresa May's premiership. <laughs> Golden, halcyon days, weren't they? I mean, well, everything was so much simpler. <laughs> it, was simpler it was a simpler, simpler time. Um, oh, I think dude. you know. I think if if they if Joe Biden took a leaf out of Angela Rayner's book mm. um, and called Donald Trump scum, it would probably be the nicest thing that anyone said about anyone um, in the whole debate. But you know, maybe something else has happened, um, and we'll be talking about the American elections. I think next week will be next week's podcast will be an American election fest. Liz we Gerard, should do it in American Liz Gerard, I'm go, I've gone American. Uh, Liz, Liz is about to join Howdy. us. Howdy. Howdy, Liz. <laughs> and uh, here, she, uh, here she is. Um, and we can talk to, um, we can talk to, to, to Liz, which, uh, which is, is fantastic. Um, Liz, are you there? I'm here, yes. Hi. Fantastic. Well, lovely to chat to you, Liz, as always. I think the last time we had you on the podcast... 
Was it for the live? Was it for the live two hundredth edition one? I think it might have been, might it? Liz Jarrod, for anyone who doesn't know, is the New Europeans, um, well, resident media expert. I think former former uh, night editor at the uh, the Sunday Times, amongst other incredible jobs across Fleet Street. She is the first lady of Fleet Street, and she's here to talk to us about the Daily Star. You've written a piece, I think, for for um, this week's New European. But why, Liz, why don't you just tell us a little bit about um, where the Daily Star was and exactly what transformation has happened in the last sort of 12 months or so? Um, I think that the Daily Star has been quite predictable. It's, it's, um, it functions on reality TV. So um, I'm a celebrity. Um, there, there's a whole sequence of things you see, right? There's always gonna be a fix at the end of these things. Um, the weather, we're always going to have killer storms because you can bet your life that a tree will fall down and kill at least someone, so it becomes a killer storm and any time it becomes windy. Um, you have lots of mutant rats um, and giant mosquitoes and all sorts of terrible things that are coming in from abroad to kill us. Um, it's, it's, it's a very larky paper. Um, it's It's sort of up from the Sunday sport, but it, it, it's always been a big fun paper. Mm. Um, Psycho seagulls are, 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 are an annual thing that comes. Last, last summer, I think some one psycho seagull kept a couple hostage in their home for six days because they couldn't, they couldn't get out because they were being bombarded by these things that were attacking <laughs> them. Um, there's an endless supply of these stories. Um, and then suddenly it's got a bit political. And um it's working and some somewhere they along the line they've got someone with some genius ideas for front pages rather as we have chris barker um, and they they are coming up with some some starry ones the first one this year was um jokey rather than political and that was on february the first when of course great day of independence, it might have been the 31st of January, not sure which, um, great day of independence, all, all of all of the Brexit press was celebrating that we were now out of the EU, and the Daily Star also had a front page celebrating being out of the EU, um, or, or celebrating a historic day, and the historic day, hang on, I'm just, I'm just, calling it up on my screen. So yes, well, I, I, I have to say, when I saw, without giving it away before you do, when I saw this front page, um, I, 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 saw, I, was, I was shocked. I mean, for any, for any and I, I adore psycho pigeons and killer rats and all that kind of thing. I really love the tabloid press for all its, you know, I, I understand that it can be nasty, et cetera, et cetera, for all its dark side. Um, but I, as, a, as a tabloid watcher, I was just like, wow. This is this is quite something. So t- tell us about that front, Liz. Well, this this one I'm talking. I think you're probably thinking about Dominic Cummings, are you? No, no, no. I'm thinking about the, the Brexit Day one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Souvenir edition. Nice, nice, nice union flag at the top. Today is a truly historic moment for our great nation. That's right. It's the end of dry January. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. That is brilliant. Very good. It is and brilliant. It was just going off off at a tangent. Um, but then, then it did get political, and um, in uh, let me let me have a look through. And when we get the other thing is probably it's probably worth mentioning, um, Liz, as you flick. So I know you've got this incredible library of of newspapers in front of you that you're flicking through there. But 
The other thing that's probably worth mentioning is, of course, the Dilly Sarah's had a change of ownership, um, which I guess might have something to do with this a little bit, would you say? I think it's got something to do with it in the extent, to the extent that it's got a new editor. Yeah. Um, but it's not, it's not moved that far away um, from where it always was. And it's not, it's not, yes, it's now, it's now owned by Reach, which owns, um, so it and the Express um, used to be Desmond's. Now they're, they're owned by the same people as the Mirror. Mm-hmm. The Express, um, when it was, ta- when, when, when the takeover happened, the first thing that happened to the Express, Gary Jones came in and the migrant hating um, front pages stopped like mm-hmm. that ping. Mm-hmm. Mm. came down and that was the end of that but in every other respect the paper has stayed the same in that it still is telling old people how to live forever um it doesn't have quite so many um miracle cures eat cough drink coffee and beetroot to save your life that sort of stuff but it's still as rabidly anti-eu as it ever was there's a people. bit less about princess diana i've not seen her on the front for a while she's been dead for a few years Every know, single Monday, they used to splash on Princess Diana. <laughs> Every single Monday for about five years. Not so many murders and things, but and, and of course they're both still. They were both and, until the latest development, still constantly p- picking up on Madeleine McCann. Yes. Um, that, as indeed does the Mirror. The Mirror is obsessed with old crimes. Um, but so the Star also hasn't changed its changed its its spots at all. It. It's not a. It's not gone left. I mean, I'm looking at headline here now. You horrible little snowflakes. It's it's free to go on the rampage with the with the um, the the um, bridge killer. Um, there there is a lot of there is a lot of still. We don't. We we we're not woke. We're not um, lefties. We're still on the right of the of the spectrum. But they've lost patience with with the with the government, and they've lost patience so spectacularly, in a way that the other other papers are just busy saying to um, well, everything that Johnson says just gets reported straight. Um, whereas the Star has taken upon itself actually to start questioning what's going on and doing it very effectively indeed. And of course, the, the the famous one has been these these cut out masks, which I mentioned before you came on, and I hope some of our listeners are wearing them. Um, <laughs> so, so, I, I, looked, I looked. The New European indeed did a did a cut out mask for last Halloween. We've done them for a few times actually for <laughs> Halloween. Yeah, so maybe they maybe they are getting some of their ideas um, from the, from the New European. Very different products, of course. But what what do you think? How how effective can good um, there is an element of satire here, of course, but how effective can sort of biting um, sort of political satire like this in our tabloid newspapers? And of course, the Star isn't the first to do this. I think it's very reminiscent of, um, and you know, Calvin McKenzie divides opinion, but his son, when they did it, when they were really biting and really having a go at government, um, they did it superbly well. How effective is it, do you think? I think it's very effective. And I think it's very effective when it comes from somebody like the Daily Star, because it's suddenly getting a profile that it's not had before. Um, you know, I mean, when it, it features almost daily on the, on, the, um, on the 10 past six front page news round, it was on there today with its tracksuit bottoms. Yesterday it had another set of clowns on the front page. It's getting mentioned on the Radio 4 Today programme news 
mm. news review, um, which is in the past, it's just been there to be laughed at, really. Mm. Um, and they're getting their message across. And it's put it, what's, what's, not only are they saying things that other papers aren't saying, um, they're actually showing up the sun even more for being so completely beholden to this government. And so the, the, the contrast is stark. Well, that's really interesting because I, I, um, I uh, have a love-hate relationship with the sun. I think we can all understand where the, where the sort of hate comes from. But I also, I think in the past, it has been a very important and also excellently written newspaper. But do you think it's, do you think it's tired now? Do you think it's boring? Do you think it needs a shake-up? <laughs> Shall I read you? Um, I had an email the other day from an old friend of mine who used to be a very senior member of the Sun, may even have been their deputy editor at one point. I'm not okay. sure I go so far as that. But, and it, let me see if I can find it for you. Because, of course, we've, um, I mean, we, we were talk, we've talked about the Sun quite a lot on this podcast in recent times because we had uh, Chap had written um, a book James about Bell. the... written Sunburn, which seems to be selling quite well. Excellent, yeah. Um, which was uh, and 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 it is it is fascinating to look. I know I'm fascinated as to how Murdoch created the Sun and where it came from and everything. But I do feel like it's I don't know if it's it, it just feels a bit obvious at the moment. And I, and I never I never used to felt that from the Sun, even if I disagreed with it, which I often did, of course. Um, but it just feels a bit it, like it just exists thing. now. Right. So this is this is from former Sun man says the problem with the sun is it's now run by people who think they know what readers want. In the past, it was run by people who knew what the readers want. Mm -hmm. With new humanist sun leadership have never visited the dog and duck themselves, but have this quaint idea that all readers live there, watching spurs, throwing darts, and eating port scratchings. The mirror made the same mistake in the 80s, thinking all its punters were handicaps with whippet and a racing pigeon. Kelvin's genius was that he knew when it was time for beer and skittles and when it was time to get serious. Today's son is so far up Morris's backside on that it's become an embarrassment. Well, I think that says it all because uh, you know, and and it's difficult sometimes for people to to quite understand this because there's almost nothing that I agree with uh, Kelvin McKenzie on, but I still would 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 um, put him up there with some of my journalistic heroes because he knew his reader so well, um, and because you know he got so many things wrong, so many things wrong. You know, and uh, and and he quite rightly is called out for those things. But I mean, one of my favourite periods in tabloid history was that period after Thatcher, when Major and of course Murdoch backed Major, I believe. I think yes, he did. And um, and then it, it, just the wheels fell off, didn't they? Spectacularly after the '92 election and uh, the ERM and all that kind of thing, when we had to leave the exchange rate mechanism. And Kelvin, and I think Murdoch, well, Murdoch definitely agreed with him, just went, let's just go after, uh, let's just go after Major now. And I feel like it was shocking because this was a this was a Tory paper that, you know, that was of that side of politics attacking one of their own. And I guess that's why that's why this the, the current stuff from the story is reminiscent of that, I guess. I think what's so important is that is that if you and the, and the male, much as I have many issues with the male, is doing the same thing. You, you, 
you ha you go after your friends and tell them where they're, they're going wrong. You don't just parrot out what they're doing. It's not being a true friend. If you are a believer in the conservative cause, then you've got to tell them when they're getting it wrong as much as pander to them when they're getting it right, in your yeah. opinion. Um, and if you just pretend that everything's hunky-dory and everything's all right, and you think that every, three Thursdays in succession, that the... the it's acceptable just to put up a front page that says, go out tonight and clap for the NHS, which is what they did. They gave, mm. devoted their entire front page on three successive Thursdays just to telling people to stand on their doorsteps and clap. Yeah. That's not news. That's not being a newspaper. That's not telling your readers anything. Mm. They've just got this obsession with telling people what to do. Mm. Mm. I wonder whether they are... I wonder whether the Sun and the Mail are wary of... Um, being critical of the government during a pandemic, um, and I wonder whether that's got something to do with it. And I'll, I'll, I've got to say, I was quite—I'm quite surprised. I was quite surprised to look at the front pages on Thursday morning and see that the. Well, I think that you know, we can talk about Angela Rayner a little bit later, but one of the it was just, the the, lay, the the votes last night um, or Wednesday night rather. Uh, about free school meals was was a, a fairly big story, and I don't think that's made any front page today, apart from the the Daily Mirrors, which had a quite a striking front page with the names of all of the 323 Tories or however many it was who voted um, against giving free school meals to children during the the holidays. That seems to me to be the sort of thing that. You know, a, the Paul Dacre male might have seized on, and even the the Kelvin McKenzie son might have seized on, and 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 said, "What the hell is going on here?" Yeah, the um, yes, the, the mirror did the did the yeah, then the others didn't, and of course the son, of course it again reinforcing this this self obsession. You know, right back the poppy back the poppy appeal. You know, mm. sort of. <laughs> I'm a poppy star, are you? You know, sort of, what is that? Um, yeah. The mail has not exactly been generous to the government over 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 this pandemic. It's it's been pretty much on its case, I think, more so than and it, than um, you might have expected. Yeah, the, I agree. I agree. The express, um, the express I see a back on 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 Brexit. Do you think? Um, and well, let, just Liz, if you've got two minutes I, I love chatting to you because <laughs> because I'm a newspaper obsessive and so are you and I, and I know Stevie's too but it's great when we've got you on so while we've got you on what and we spoke about the mail before and we spoke about it when we did the um the live webinar but I, I have um I have a, 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 a I mean Geordie is my former editor at this when I worked at the standard he was my editor and I've got a lot of time for him actually how do you think he's doing at the mail and I know we've sort of I asked you that before and I think we're sort of three four months on now do, do you think the mail have got it right? And do you think, um, or do you think they've moved away from their reader a little bit? Do you think Dacre had it right with, with regards to the pandemic and the response? I think, I think, I think they're definitely right on the pandemic. Um, in fact, they could be, they could be harder, but given that they are, yeah, I think, that, I think, I think Geordie Gray is still being quite, um, quite, they, you know, he's, he's, he's trading a tightrope, isn't he? He doesn't want to upset the, the um, the Paul Dacre following public, yeah. um, 
But you see, Matt Kelly, our, our um, publisher and former editor and founder, along with Steve of the New European, um, wrote a, a great piece for G, yes. uh, GQ about um, about Geordie and, and spoke to him. And, and it was all about this, you know, we we don't want the brand to be toxic anymore. Do you think Do you think he's managing that? Or do you think he still has a long way to go? I still think he's got a long way to go, but he is trying. He's trying. But he's, I mean, if you look at today's front page, um, it's still it's still the same old thing. Jenny Murray, why well, I'm going topless on TV. Jilly Cooper, it's so more hard for men to flirt now. So poor old men, you know. So I'm now, of course, if if Dacre was still in charge, um, now I'm, I'm saying this, but for all I know, they might very well have done it. So <laughs> I've been I've been busy doing other things <laughs> this week. Um, but if Dacre had been in charge, there'd 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 be a much more of a fuss about the prostate cancer and fallout from COVID than there has been, I think, in the mail. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I remember a, 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 a front page that was about how men were suffering from discrimination and, and, and that they were being put upon because their cancers weren't getting as much attention as breast cancer. Um, it was it was a totally unnecessary um creation of gender politics i think that was where you know in uh, you know i some sort of full disclosure and this is no secret to any of the listeners of this podcast i also work for the daily mail and you know i think i think you know dick dick just lost his lost his touch in the last few years didn't he um and he certainly did have it for his readership disagree with him or or not you know that's not the issue he knew his reader was and i think much like we're talking about the sun now. He, he, he kind of, he just, uh, he just went a bit. I don't want to use any, any sort of wrong terms, but he, he just, he just lost it with. He, he just went too far, and that that toxicity, which uh, which Geordie is trying to trying to sort out now, was created by Dicker. I mean, he, he he probably should have, he probably should have waved goodbye before any referendums happened, let's see. <laughs> oh, if only, if only, if only we have been in a different place then. Um, so yeah. I'm also interested in Liz, and again, while, while we've got you, and sorry, um, Steve, I know I'm absolutely hogging the um, the, uh, the chat <laughs> with Liz, but I, I, I find her absolutely fascinating to chat to. Um, the, the mirror interests me as well. Where do you see, because, you know, one of our great... Um, one of our great uh, tabloid mastheads, of course, along with the Sun and perhaps the Daily Star in time, if it carries on in the way it's going. But wh- where where is it now? And uh, you know, wh- what do you think it needs to do to get back to something like the glory days of you know? I loved Piers Morgan's editorship of the the, uh, the Mirror, for example. I think I think the Mirror has has been been lost for oh. Since Piers left, perhaps. Well, for a long time, it it seems to, as I said, it's got this obsession with old crimes, and it really it it really is sort of. I mean, Jill Dando, Madeleine McCann, but you go further back than that, and you know the Bamber crimes and the um, the, the the M25 man whose name escapes me. Um, it is constantly. Pumping up this, I, I remember it did a front page. I mean, this must be God knows how many years ago now, three, four years ago, I don't know. But it had a picture of Harry Roberts, who, as you may know or may not know, killed three policemen in back in 
our part of the world in the 60s and yeah. he went he went he went off um and he hid in a he hid in um Thorley Woods near where my sister lived so I, re I remember the era quite clearly um so it's a long 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 time ago very old story um he duly went to prison and I think he was released on license very recently so he must have served 30 40 years in jail um nasty man yes but the mirror had a front page on him getting a driving license as if this was you know, sort of absolute national scandal that somebody who had supposedly paid their debt to society um, should actually be allowed to have a driving license. And it's this obsession with old things. And the mirror, I can't forgive for the referendum, even more than I can't forgive Dacre, because the mirror just didn't turn up. So you had, you had the Mail, the Express, the Sun, the Telegraph absolutely hammering the Brexit case day in, day out. And the Mirror just would occasionally put it on page two. Um, I remember one very bad, or in my opinion, very bad splash headline, which was um, about Osborne's budget and how, how it was a punishing budget for, this was, a, this was Osborne saying what would happen if we had Brexit. And it was as though we are anti-Tory and we can't work out that we're actually on the same side as the Tories here. And this was the Remain case. And it was, if you looked at it, you would think, oh, yes, this is yet another nasty Tory budget. And mm. they couldn't cope with being on the same side as a Tory government. Um, they were all over the place with Corp and they didn't know what to do with themselves. Yeah. I mean, the Guardian was a bit lost as well. Um, so they just haven't really turned up when it's mattered. And that's what's given, I think, you know, the left people always mock the Guardian um, and the readerships of these places are tiny now. The world's think. worst, of course, as Kelvin used to call it, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, the, but the mirror could have, you know, sort of the, on, the, on the referendum, the sun delivered its Brickies and, and, and the mail delivered its, its, its middle class people and the, and, the, and the express delivered their old people vote and they all got their constituencies out to vote. But where were all the nurses and the curers mm. and the mm. people that you would expect to vote, vote to read the mirror? Where were they? They didn't get them on board with the, with the referendum. They didn't engage them and they did nothing to point out what Europe did, you know, they, they should have been going to Evervale and saying, look, yeah. this is this is what happens. Yeah. This is what Europe does for you. And they didn't. They just didn't turn up. They thought, oh, this is this is this is too boring for readers. We won't sell any papers by banging on about yeah. Europe. We'd do much better by talking about Jill Dando or Madeline. And well, I think, <laughs> I think they probably were. I, th I think they probably thought that a, a great many of their readers I think that you know the, the I worked at the mirror as you know for for a lot of years um and people at the mirror are, are always terrified of putting the readers off scaring off more readers and whether that was changing the tv page or coming out for something that was unpopular or you know slagging off liverpool fc or manchester united there was always a you know, a great fear uh, went round the newsroom. It didn't, it didn't so much in Piers' day, um, but uh, but certainly um, with the people who, who follow Piers. I've got a, I've got an awful lot of um, admiration and um, for, for for 
of people who were there then and, and, and the people who are still running it now. I've got an yeah. awful lot of admiration and time for, but I do think that you're absolutely right, Liz. The, the, the mirror failed to really take a side um, and really hammer, hammer, hammer it home. The front page on the day, don't take a leap into the dark with a picture mm. of a black hole or something was just unbelievably mm. poor. And, and it that, followed on from... And that, of course, was, that was a complete mystery to people because they hadn't been, you know, they hadn't been reporting on it and suddenly, oh, here we are exactly. on the day, oh, we've got an opinion. And it did, and it followed on. It was amazing to me that it followed on to, you know, it was two years after the, the Daily Record failed to take a side on yeah. which way people should vote in the Scottish independence referendum. You know, I do think that, you know, there's... All, all that said, though... The papers have got attitudes, haven't they? And on, in, and on those... Uh, on those occasions, they failed to have an attitude, which I thought was was a mistake in, in both cases, despite it really admiring and liking a lot of the people involved. Do you know what? And we, Liz, we've, we've already... Oh, sorry, Liz, go on. So all, all, that, all that said, I've got this month's Daily Mirrors up on my screen, and they're good. You know, mm. I mean, they are good, and they they are better than the star, but the star is noticeable because it's come out with these occasional ones here, 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 here. But yeah. they are they are good, you know, Northern Fury, one lockdown rule for them. Um, are particularly good, you know, take, they take um, Stanley Johnson to task. Um, but there's one, every parent's nightmare, and this was the thing that really got me, was these, these kids at university in Newcastle. Three, mm. three kids died, and nobody touched it. And you think, what's going on with the world? But the mirror did. Um, windbag on the wind farm rubbish. Um, and, and again, you know, it's really good. They, they're, they're going for, their, obviously, their Manchester readership. Um, I mean, I love I love the mirror. You know, Hugh Cudlip is is right up right up there, beyond way beyond Kelvin McKenzie and my um, my journalistic heroes. And I've got and I do hope you know I think they've got a brilliant political editor now, a friend of mine, Pippa Crea, who you're at the Standard. She is fantastic. She's she absolutely fabulous. Absolutely brilliant. Um, she was the uh, City Hall uh, editor when I was on the desk at the Standard, and she is fantastic. And um, and I think, you know, w- with with her in charge of the politics, I think they've got a really bright future ahead of them. But I, but I absolutely agree that they need to, um, they just need some attitude. And I don't think actually they're helped out by the likes of the Star and the Mail having a go at the government because you'd expect the Mirror to have a go at the Tory government. Well, that's exactly right. That's why when, when I was doing my thing... Um, this week, I was I was looking at the sun against the star because, as you say, there's no point saying, "Look, yes, the other people are doing this." Will you expect the mirror to do it? It's their job to do it. Hmm. Can I ask you a couple of things before we let you go, um, Liz? <laughs> the, the first one is um, uh, let me ask you a couple of things, and then and you can and then you can answer them. The first one is. We talked about the star. I find the star's front page is very amusing. Jonathan Clark, who's the editor, um, I always liked when I was at the Mirror and is a great operator. Um, we, we all talk about the star's front pages. We all think they're great. They get mentioned on the TV and the radio, as you say. Do you think that has any sort of cut through at all with the, the star's core readers? Because the star's readership doesn't 
seem to be coming, uh, seem to be going up and, and or it doesn't seem to be, the decline doesn't seem to be slowing down. So is this just something that's nice for us and, and the, the stars readers don't really care about it? And the other thing is, we talked about 1992 uh, and Black Wednesday. We talked about um, when the sun and the male sort of started to nice up to Tony Blair. There's, there's no real sign of the Sun and the Mail and other newspapers being interested in Keir Starmer at all, is there? Why do you think that is? And do you think that will change? No, I don't think they're interested in Keir Starmer. They want a Conservative government. They want a different Prime Minister. They don't want a different government. They're not going to back Starmer. They're going to go for Rishi, I think. I think Murdoch's already sort of switching horses. I think Gove's horse has bolted. One well, hope so. Um, and so I think I think that's where that's where they're looking. I don't think that that's going to be the country's um, rescue package. Yeah. But um, I think I think that's the way they'll go. They won't they won't backstarmer. I mean, we, last time we spoke, we talked about the, the man on Sunday's laughable attempt to blame Keir Starmer for as being a hypocrite field. Um, but <laughs> you know, I don't think they're ever going to say that that Labour is better. Unless, unless something goes, unless something goes really wrong, if Johnson goes in within the next year, which I'm sure he will, um, and they get Sunak in, assume, or, or assuming they get somebody in from the somebody more sensible in, um, I think they'll stick with them. Something would have to go very wrong for them to want to switch towards Labour. And on the star thing. Is, is there any is there any cut through or is it just? Their circulation, of course, everybody's took a terrible dive. With, with I mean, they're all down twenty percent on yeah. on on last year, courtesy of COVID. Um, so they're all really suffering. Um, the star has gone up by two percent month on month, when others have gone up one percent. Whether right. that's because of Don cutouts, I don't know. But, <laughs> Um, I think I think the thing that I I put in the, in that piece today was that I like the fact that they respect their readers enough to assume that they know who Dominic Cummings is. Absolutely, yeah. And um, I think that other tabloids would assume that that they wouldn't. But John and, John Clark there has taken a leaf right out of Kelvin's book, hasn't he? You know, it was him that. It was him that famously did the, um, you know, now we've all been screwed by the cabinet, all the Lamont stuff. You know, That's the white right. van man of the Sun readership of those days was it was assumed that yeah he liked the footy and a pint, but he also knew he was in the cabinet. But the other thing that was that, that was really important, I mean, with this with this piece last week that the Sun did that the Star did about Cummings and his and his council tax, is that. Um, the story was was broken by the Northern Echo. It's it's made television, it's made radio, it's made social media. Um, the Guardian did a story on it. The Telegraph did a two or three pars. The Mirror did two or three pars. None of the others even reported it in print, whether they put it on their websites, I don't know. I mean, can you imagine that? Sort of six out of 10 national newspapers didn't report that the Downing Street Chief of Staff or whatever his title is, formal title is, 
you know, sort of has had a £30,000 debt just sort of written off. And nobody even thinks it's worth a sentence. Yeah, it was very odd. And it, uh, it, I mean, that is extraordinary. Yeah. And, um, and a and wonderful so piece of... Uh, for, the, for the star splashing on it. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful piece of regional j- newspaper journalism as well by the... Oh, I can't remember the chap's name at the Northern Echo, but that was a that great was piece of dogged... Because, they, because they, they, they didn't just sort of stop at the point when everybody else could have... St- you know, yeah, when everybody yeah. else stopped, you know, all oh, right, Barnard Castle, I cite all those jokes and everything. But they actually started digging. And then to unearth the fact that these things weren't even built with proper planning permission, and then this thing... But now, of course, I think they're going after them, aren't they? Mm, mm, mm. Listen, Liz, we, we should probably just do our own media chat um, podcast because we could literally sit here and talk to you sorry, all afternoon. I'm, I'm sorry, I've sort of taken up your, too much of your time. <laughs> Not at all. We've taken up too much of your time. It's been absolutely fascinating to chat to you. Next um, time we should talk about the crazy anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers at the Telegraph. But, but thanks, Liz. It's great to talk to you. Um, we would really... We'd really love to have you on again soon, Liz, and um, we because I think you uh, your, your insight on this is is is, is absolutely superb. Um, so thank you very much. Okay, thanks for your time. I'll tell you what else I like, Steve, on the on the star um, because you know in, in modern times we have to think we're old inky hacks, and yeah. uh, as as is Liz, and, and Liz won't mind me won't mind me mind me saying that, but they've got they're, they're launching this brilliant thing on their website where they do a Russian roulette um, sort of new. So you press this button and you just get whatever story it gives you a sort of roulette thing. Oh right, okay, it's wow. a great idea. That is, that's God. That's I remember that. I remember us talking about that. Um, God, many years ago when I was. Well, if only you'd actioned it. (laughs) There are no new ideas in this in this world. I think that was one of Malcolm Coles's ideas. There you go, good old Malcolm. Well, you know, talent borrows, Steve, and genius steals. Now we need to. We need to. We talk. We spoke to Liz for far too long. That's all my fault because I I really do find her fascinating. But but it was fascinating, you know. And um, I know not all uh, all our listeners will be as obsessed with newspapers as you are and and as I am. But um, but I hope you got a a great deal out of that. No one, no one really talks about them as well as Liz Gerard. I don't think. No, I don't think so. Um, (laughs) Let's talk about Andy Burnham. Well, let's. Should we just? Should we just talk about? I mentioned Angela Rayner, and I just wanted to oh, talk yes. about that. Now, obviously, what Angela Rayner said uh, about Chris Clarkson—she—you could hear her. Um, uh, you could hear her saying "scum" as Chris Clarkson, who's from Haywood and Middleton, which is not far from um, where I used to live in Manchester. Um, you could hear a saying scum while he was talking about how Labour was opportunistic and guilty of hindsight um, when talking about Andy Burnham. Um, she then appeared to deny it. I don't know what the, the sort of comeback will be for, for Angela Rayner. It took a lot of the gloss off, well, not the gloss, but it took a lot of the of sort of noise away from what was should have been a really strong day for Labour, I thought. Yeah. And... Um, and I just thought it was, um, you know, it, it, it was it gave ammo to the to yeah. the Conservatives, and it was really stupid. But I think beyond that, it's you know, listen. I know that every week I have a go at the Brexiteers of the week and stuff like that. And and there are two or three people. There are more than two or three people that I, I seriously 
dislike among them. And I think that, that, that some people are genuinely are racist. And I think that some people genuinely are opportunists. But a great number of people that I disagree with are just people that I disagree with. I don't Absolutely. think that they are scum. And, and I think that we've got to get away from this sort of idea that, you know, there, there is a, a, there's a, a great... On the left, there is a great, um, you know, assumption of, of of holiness, and that anyone who uh, disagrees with us is is not holy in some way, and it, and is you know, uh, and is is virgin on evil. And I just thought that that was really crystallised by, you know, somebody scoring a few anodyne political points and and being called scum. I've got a lot of time for Angela Rayner. I think she's great. I just thought, I thought on that occasion she she made a mistake and it was a mistake that was indicative um, of a lot of people. Right, do left. you know what it felt I to me like? Getting, I see she's getting an awful lot of an awful lot of um, people agreeing with her and Tory hashtag Tory scum trending. No, uh, listen, uh, I, Wednesday do you know what I, I, I? It felt like Corbyn's Labour again. Yeah, well, um, and do you know what these are these are these should be serious people now the word the word scum is not a nice word and i grew up in in west yorkshire where um there is um a lot of hatred between a lot of <laughs> a lot of different people when i was a boy at least but the word scum always makes me think of the rivalry between leeds united and Manchester united yeah any well yeah Manchester United mainly, certainly during that period. Yeah. And I just think, well, you know, it just feels like we're really arguing about football. I love football. You love football. Everyone hates Leeds. I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, it, it, uh, and Angela Rayner should be above using that word. I'm sorry, but she just should. It's not a nice word. Um, it, and it just, it just makes her look stupid. Um, listen, I'm not saying I agree with, uh, you know, I, I agree with, I actually, I agree with her in the, in, in the sense that she's annoyed, um, with, uh, with the comments and that, but, the, but it is unparliamentary and, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but this isn't a fight in a pub. This is democracy. And actually She's better than she's better than that. I think is what I'm trying to yeah, say. She's I, better I, than that. She's I think that's that. absolutely that's absolutely right. You know, when you see, let's go through a couple of them. Brendan Clark Smith, he's a Tory MP. I can't remember where he's from. I don't believe in nationalising children. We need to get back mm. to the idea of taking responsibility. This means less celebrity virtue signalling on Twitter. Um, which is a talking, you know, directly to Marcus Rashford. Marcus yeah. Rashford, by the way, they are going to cave in on this, like they cave in on everything else. They've already given Marcus Rashford an MBE. He's going to end up with a knighthood. He's going Do you know what? By the I, thought you, I thought you made a very good point when we were talking to Liz because he's going to be Baron Rashford. <laughs> Baron Rashford. Marcus of Rashford. <laughs> I thought you made a very good point when we were talking to Liz. The male, or indeed the son, should absolutely massively get behind Marcus Rashford well, because this do. is a campaign that is very winnable and it will be U-turned and that they will win. And then they can go, oh, look what we did. And Marcus can say, thanks to the son, thanks to the male, thanks to the Daily Star, perhaps, John, if you're listening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, because you're right, they are going to cave in on it because they've caved in on it before. And Marcus Rashford is the best politician we've got in the country at the moment. 
yeah um this i mean this this sort of notion of um as, as you say you can see why angela rayner is annoyed when you hear people like ben bradley saying it's not as simple as you make out marcus like to make out marcus it passes responsibility from feeding kids away from parents to the state and increases dependency. Some parents are not good parents and prioritize things ahead of their kids. Uh, it's a small minority, but some do step out of the PC bubble and come and live in the real world. You know, this, this is- you know, What I'll say about that is, and that was a- Who is tipped as a future Tory leader. Nah, nah, who is nah. saying, we're not gonna give free meals to kids who need free meals because a small minority of people will spend some of their money on something other than their children. I mean, it's absolutely disgraceful, um, but it doesn't, you know. What I'd say is, actually, Ben Bradley, clearly an idiot, and he'll never be the, he'll never be the leader of the, um, of the Conservative Party, or indeed the Prime Minister. But he's not wrong in, in some respects, but, it, but what... <laughs> But just putting blame on bad parents is not is not good enough. What we what we what we need to do um, is educate and uh, and and help these parents and help these children that are in dire need now. You know, it, it, it's almost like those. And I once saw this, and it was one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. Someone walking past a homeless per person and saying get a job you know what i mean it's that kind of well exactly it's stupidity that. we have to help them get up and get a job you know that's what the state is for i'm no fan of big state but we have to help them to go down the right path so just saying nah you starve that'll teach you all the bad parents a lesson is despicable and disgusting yeah it is and the amount and the number of you know the the, the small minority that he talks about is is a tiny tiny tiny, tiny. minority which 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 you know people on the right always try and uh, imply is is huge and the you know the sort of the war on the scra so-called scroungers and stuff yeah. like this it's um just, we've, we've lived through we've lived through all of this kind of stuff and you know i understand why why um she is uh why she is vexed but i just don't think she did us any credit um there um maybe you know i would have respected her more if she'd said i was just shouting out names of ray winston films that i like <laughs> i didn't really mean to call him scum and then she'd said, and when Bo if Boris Johnson stood up, she'd have gone, oh, sexy beast, um, and stuff like that. So, I mean, she could have got out oh of God, it. Oh, God, that would be dangerous. Um, <laughs> Angela, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, don't do that, Angela. Who said this, by the way? If the government can subsidise Eat Out to Help Out, not being seen to give poor kids lunch in the school holidays looks mean and is wrong. Hmm. Do you know who said that? Uh, I don't, but it's a good point. Subsidise, eat out to help out, not being seen to give poor kids lunch in school holidays looks mean and is wrong. Well, it's true. I mean, me and you, very achingly middle class. Yeah. Um, but but perhaps from, you know, working class backgrounds, enjoyed eat out to help out. I went out eight nights a week um, during <laughs> eat out to help out. Uh I don't it, know who said it. Tell me. It was said, but that was said by Nigel Farage in a in mm. a even a stop clock gives the right time twice a day. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I would say. Do you when agree? 
when when you I mean it's a strange world when you're agreeing with Nigel Farage, is, but he's yeah. but on that occasion he's absolutely right, and that is why um, going back to what we were saying before, the the the, the male and the son should be all over this. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Marcus Rashford, one of the most popular people in the country, isn't he? It's just, it's a winnable, it's winnable. And do you know, hey, do you know who really fancies Marcus Rashford? Go, oh, go on. Well, do you guess. Um, is it uh, Mrs. Rashford? I don't know. <laughs> is Colonel it Kurtz. Is Colonel it Angela Rayner? I don't know. Colonel Kurtz. Oh, Colonel Kurtz. Your yeah, yeah. paramour. Okay, go. what 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 we got? What else we got in the news? Because we're we're vastly running out of time. Well, we will, we want to talk about the King of the North, don't we? We want to talk about Andy oh, Burnham. Um, my first question about Andy Burnham is not has he has he has he has he locked, has he kidnapped Paul Heat and just stolen Paul Heaton mm. out of the beautiful South glasses and his lovely anorak and all of that kind of stuff. But my question to you is, has I mean, Andy Burnham has riled up the, the government, hasn't he? We've seen that they are riled with him. He's, had a very, he's got a very fractious relationship with Robert Jenrick. We now see that the government are trying to cut him out of stuff altogether, giving um, money directly to local mayors in Greater Manchester rather than the mayor of Greater Manchester. Has he, has he, is he playing a blinder here or has he overplayed his hand somewhat? Um, and does this sort of, is this all feeding into, you know, is this part of a government strategy to sort of claw, claw back some power from the regional mayors? Uh, I don't think that's the case, but I'll get to that in a second. I think um, it was brilliant as an ordiner, it was brilliant to see um, Andy Burnham stand up to government. And I often. Um, uh, bang on about how the east of england doesn't have a representative a proper representative in um in those high level chats with government like the other other regions that are devolved and i see you know i tell mps business leaders etc how important that is and it was all going really well for me because andy burnham was doing it and and i am a fan of andy burnham he's a nice chap as well i've met him on a couple of occasions and i think he would have been a very good Labour leader, and he and he still might be, but I think he tripped um, this week. I think the you know this was basically an argument over five million, uh, five million pounds, wasn't it? In the end, and I mean, it was a bit of theatre, wasn't it? His press conference and getting shown it and all that kind of thing. We we know that. I think that's accepted now. That was a bit of theatre. That was silly, really. It was it, it just it was just silly. And I think probably uh probably his ego just won him over a little bit there. Um I still think he's a great politician. The Hillsborough stuff was fantastic, of course, and that sort of got him where he is now, I think. And I still think he's got a lot of uh a lot a lot to give Greater Manchester, obviously, but the country uh, at large, and I think we'll probably see him back in full national politics um before too long. But he did, you know, when he when he walked out in his big coat, and a lot of people saying, "Oh, now's not the time for an Oasis uh, reunion." It did feel a bit like that. It felt like he was believing his own hype a little bit, and it opened the door for Boris to do what one of my team described as a mic drop when he went, "Well, we're going to give you the money anyway." Well, I mean, <laughs> and the- to, and to, but he, he managed to take the high road there, 
and well, he did. I mean, he, he to his, I mean, let's give Andy Burnham some credit and let's not credit Boris Johnson with with something. If if he was going to do that anyway, and he'd intended to do it anyway, he would have said that he was going to do that in his press conference on. I agree Tuesday. completely. I agree completely. But what? What? But Andy walked into got that to trap. Views, it, 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 yeah, I mean, it was a bit late, wasn't it? If he'd said immediately, "Well, we're going to give you the money anyway, but you're just not going to get your little mitts on it." Then it would then it would be fine, but the fact that it took him until PMQs the next day, Steve, um, I agree completely. But I'm just talking about the about the about politics, and I think that when um, you know, and, and that that was that is the right thing to do from government, and I think Andy Burnham was doing the right thing to try and get the best deal for his people. That's what politics is about. But he he walked into that trap, even if it wasn't laid at the time, and someone came up with the idea afterwards. He, you know, it was it was a bit of a cock up on his part. I th- I feel. Well, yeah, I mean, they were. All, I think they were always going to. They were always going to do that, weren't mm. they? So, mm. in effect, he was. I mean, in effect, he was kind of pay, playing with house money, wasn't he? I don't know yeah. whether. Yeah. I don't know whether it sort of makes people think worse of him. Do you think that he sees himself as a future Labour leader? Because <sighs> you know, there, there's a lot of. Ian Martin wrote a piece in the Times. I think it was towards the end of last week. It might have been last Saturday. Mm. quite controversial he quoted a a senior figure from the Blair era saying Andy Burnham is the real deal he also quoted a former ministerial colleague of Andy Burnham's um, saying Andy is one of the most unprincipled politicians I've ever met his speech on the supposed attack on the north was disgraceful populist rubbish um I don't know. There's a. I think there was also a, somebody from the the Brown administration who was sort of calling him a bit of an opportunist as well. Do you think that he's? Do you think that he sees something bigger than being the mayor of Greater Manchester in his? Yeah, maybe I don't. I, I've got. I've got to say that I don't. I, I think. I think Andy Burnham's a, a a good guy, and I think he. I think it'd be. Uh, it'd be. He he would. Um, Having him in a, in a Labour cabinet or a shadow cabinet would would make it better. I think he's I think he's good. Whether he's a, a, a future leader of the Labour Party, I'm not entirely sure. I think Keir's got that stitched up for a while. To be honest, and we all know how much I love Keir Starmer. Love um, I think Andy Burnham's time uh, as a potential leader perhaps has gone, but he's not an old man. You know, he's a young chap. He's certainly he's certainly got a, got a chance to to hold high office. I would suggest. Um, he and I like him. So yeah, I think he's good now. And do you know what? People like him. And that is a, that is something that is that's gold dust for politicians. And beyond, you know, I said that I think he's I think he's misstepped once or twice this week. Um, but what he what he's good at is is rallying folk. And people like someone who fight for them. And I'm not from Manchester, I'm from nearby. You are from Manchester. And it was just great to hear someone fighting for their part of the country for saying you know we want more we we deserve more and this is why uh, and standing up to the government yeah i i mean i enjoyed it it's it, it's he he was right to i think he was right to to have a go yeah. he kept down from 90 to 75 to 65 um it's a shame that the government decided that they wanted to um make an example of yeah. him um Manchester will stay. <laughs> Manchester will stay heavily red. I would imagine. <laughs> and do you know what? 
Manchester is an Haywood and Middleton, who was called out by called an yeah. unpleasant name by um, by um, Angela will have a, a, a much shorter career than than Andy Burnham will have. Absolutely, and do you know what? The, there is still a feeling, and it, and it, it it does become tiresome when you're from the north. But there is still a feeling in the north that they've been hard done by for a long, long time, and um, uh, and the, you know the government were making a big deal about these red wall seats, about and all, all this kind of thing. And I think they I think they have lost some of that as well now. Um, you know, it does seem to be old. You know, like when, like when Thatcher wanted to basically quarantine Liverpool, and uh, never mind, let's just ring, let's just put a fence around it and forget about it, sort of thing. Yes. Um, and you know, like I say, Andy Burnham, I think he's made a couple of missteps, political missteps, but I think he's a good guy, and I think he's a good politician, and I think uh, Manchester is all the better for having him. Well, I think people, people like um, politicians who wear their hearts on their sleeve, and. Well, their hearts on their Parker jackets. Even if it's the sleeve has got a Stone Island patch, so <laughs> um, I think no one can doubt that he, he was speaking from the heart there. Um, but there was a little extra gravy. Uh, right, we're massively overrunning here, Steve. Massively, massively. So quickly, very quickly, I think you've got an Andy Burnham quiz. Let's do that, and then we've got to go to then we've got to go to Matt Withers. And then we're going to go to Matt Withers with Charlie Connolly. Um, I've got a three question quiz for you. Uh, question one is all the questions about Andy Burnham. Question one, um, is uh, and I've lost the quiz here, but I think question one is, um, on which TV show did Andy Burnham's wife Frankie appear in 1992 while they were first dating? Okay, complete guess, I've no idea, but I'm gonna go for remote control. Oh, it's not. Is it, do you know what? It was actually actually appeared on Blind Date. I think oh, with our Graham and Scylla. With Scylla and our Graham. Um, it's just started going out with one another. She'd obviously already applied. She was paired with a bloke called Will Harris from Surrey, um, who turned out to be wearing a red, bright red T-shirt and faded denim dungarees. Um, their date didn't go that well, presumably because she was already going out with Andy Burnham. <laughs> And Will Harris, bizarrely, went on to become a spin doctor for Michael Howard. Wow. I mean, no wonder their <laughs> relationship didn't go very well. Uh, that is extraordinary. Now, yeah. where, do you know where they went on their date? Because... Gibraltar. Um, because do you remember in the old days of Blind Date, you would get a crap date, like, oh, a meal in a beef eater. And then all of a sudden, you were going, they were going abroad and stuff when the advertisers thought, oh, people are watching this. So they went to Gibraltar, so that's a pretty good day, isn't it? You're going to New York, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then some of them were going to the, the Little Chef, um, yeah. Uh, question two, then. In 2008, what did Andy Burnham deny ever having worn? Um, a merkin. Uh, it's not a Merkin, but it does begin with M. He said, I can say with my hand on my heart that I have never worn mascara. Ah. Because obviously he's got very sort of dark eyes, hasn't he? Does. Have uh, you ever worn mascara, Steve? I've never worn mascara. I've never worn guy liner. Um, he said, Andy Burnham said that even at school, people used to say you've got eyeliner on. Um, he's, he's a bit of a sad-eyed um, lady of the lowlands, isn't he, Andy Burnham? Hmm. Uh, question three, then, and I know this is the this is the exciting one for ah. me. We'll try not to go on about this 
for too long. In 2017, Andy Burnham named his top five Manchester bands in order. Can you name Andy Burnham's top five Manchester bands? Right, so I was given... I would like to thank Steve for giving me uh, early sight of this question. <laughs> and um, and I've and what I thought about with this was, he's gonna, not going to want to alienate anyone because he's a politician. Yeah. So he's going to want a good spread. So he probably won't... I reckon Andy Burnham's record collection is pretty good, actually, but I reckon he's going to try and keep everyone happy. Good, so okay. this is my five to one... Andy, this is what I think Andy Burnham's favourite Manchester bands are. So at number five, Simply Red. Yeah. At number four, M People. Yeah. Number three, New Order. At number two, Stone Roses. And at number one, Oasis. Well, you've only got two out of the five. Oh, wow. Uh, his choice in reverse order, number five, New Order. Hmm. Number four, he picked the Verve, who are not from Manchester. They're no. from I mean... <laughs> 25, 26 miles away. It's about as near to Liverpool as it is to Manchester Wigan. Well, I did. I mean, I'm no surprise I got that wrong. I would, uh, you know, I would have picked the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. It, it, the, he picked the Cortinas, ah. uh, who are in in uh, in number as at number three. Now they're from Middleton, aren't they? Mm. Um, he picked the Smiths at number two, and he picked the Stone Roses at number one. Ah. So no uh, oasis in there. That's interesting. No oasis. Are you going to are you going to do your top five Manchester? Yes, Park? I will. And do you know what? This is this this has taken up most of my morning. Would I have I to say it would. Yeah. And and I'm really sad that I can't include uh, the Buzzcocks, the Happy Mondays, um, at New Order. That's really controversial. Um, but this is what I've gone for. Okay, number five, Oasis. Yeah. Number four, James. Number three, Stone Roses. Number two, Joy Division. Number one, Steve, can you guess? Uh, it's got. You're going to say the Smiths, aren't you? The Smiths. So go on, tell us yours then. Uh, I have got. Um, I have got number. I've got. I've got number five. I've got a certain ratio. Oh yes, I've got that number four. I've got eight oh eight state at number four. I nearly, do you know what eight oh eight state were in my long list? Yeah, very good band. State as Gary Davis once called them. I've got Buzzcocks at number three. Yeah, um, I've got the Fall at number two, and yeah. I've got Joy Division at, at number one. Oh, I, had a lot of, I had a lot of angst about the positions of number one or two. Is it is it better to have two? perfect albums and a few brilliant singles mm. Mm. or is it better to have you know well two or three years of unparalleled brilliance and then a bit of a sort of patchy stuff uh, later on over the well, I, you see i my my reason for not putting and you're a massive fall fan which i'm not i like about 20 fall songs and that sounds like a lot if you compare them to joy division or whatever but you've got to remember that the fall have got about a million songs um, the reason I left them out was exactly that. I think there's there's a lot of stuff that I can yeah. leave. I can I can leave alone. Anyway, yeah. there we go. Uh, we should probably hand over to Matt Withers and Charlie because we are very deep into this pod and we're going to get told off. So here's Matt Withers and Charlie Connolly. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. 
Hi, this week I'm joined by Charlie Connolly once again, who's written an article for this week's print edition on a new history of England, the ambitiously titled The Shortest History of England. Uh, Charlie, how are you doing? Not too bad, Matt, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm not bad. Um, so tell us about the book. I suppose the obvious first questions are, who's it by and just how short is it? <laughs> uh, it's by a writer called James Hawes, who um, has written a, a bunch of novels and came out in the kind of those sort of British novelists that came through in the mid 90s, like Irving Welsh. But he's turned his attention to nonfiction in recent years. And he wrote a book called The Shortest History of Germany, which was um, which was very good a couple of years ago. And it was it was a bit of a bestseller. Uh, and he's now produced The Shortest History of England. And I can tell you how short it is because I've got the book here. And it is 270 pages, wow. condensing the history of England into 270 pages, about 2,000 years worth of history. So quite the challenge, um, but he was up for it. Um, so you write in the article that Hawes doesn't buy into a, a narrative that England is, as you say a few times, the world's greatest nation ever, woo. Uh, so it's not a book for Michael Gove. It's not a book for Michael Gove, no, although perhaps it should be. He might he might learn something. Um, because I think um th there's a kind of misconception that there's one narrative of English history, uh, and it's a very patriotic one. And um this kind of goes against that. And I know that Michael Gove and you know the whole Brexit narrative sort of buys into that narrative that we're the greatest country in the world, we gave the world free trade, we gave the world this, we gave the world that, they should all be jolly grateful. And um, when you know, the truth is a little bit more nuanced than that. There isn't one kind of uh, you know, one monolith of the historical narrative that we can't deviate from. And if we do deviate from that, we're not patriotic somehow, we don't don't love our country. Whereas uh, James Hawes here presents a sort of different version of history. I mean, there is no definitive history of England, but he presents a history of England, which is a very persuasive one that um, that we've we've got where we are today, despite the kind of um, the the elites that are in charge and have been for centuries, and we've got where we are despite the kind of pronounced north-south divide, which I was must admit I was quite surprised to discover in the book that the north-south divide isn't a recent thing. Um, I'd assumed it had come from the sort of industrial revolution time but it, it goes way way back to before the norman conquest that there, you know, there has been this divide uh, roughly around where the river trent is between the north and the south to the extent that people in the north of england and the south of england spoke totally different languages right back then but um, somehow uh, the south seems to have, have, have triumphed in in that perception of, of the country and uh, that this is something that hawes uh, explains very well in in the book yeah, once upon a time, we wouldn't have been able to conduct this uh, interview because I, I'm very much from uh, north of the, of the, of the Trent. Um, <laughs> it is a book of the history of England, um, not a book of the history of Britain. Um, does he explain why that, he took that decision? Uh, not in so many words, but um, I mean, obviously with devolution, there is a, a strong kind of Scottish historical narrative and a Welsh historical narrative and a uh, uh, you know, very, very complicated narrative in Ireland as well um, I mean I think there is there has always been a temptation especially among the kind of the Michael Gove histor historians to uh, use England and Britain as synonyms which is mm. obviously is, is completely wrong because you now it, it is a separate country and we do have other separate countries in in these islands um, so it, it it's taking England as the subject and obviously England has come to dominate um, 
British history in, in many ways, but, but not exclusively. And it is an interesting uh, angle to take because he does point, it, 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 makes it, it makes it easier for him to point out the inequalities and division that have kind of really inhabited the historical narrative of England and to a certain extent, by extension, Britain as well, because it, it, it's not a unified country. And that's something that comes across really well in the book. Um, it, England has always been about division. It's always been about regions. It's always been, particularly since the Industrial Revolution, divided by class as well. And, and reading that whole narrative, I mean, it, history writing in recent years has become quite sort of sort of focused on specific topics and specific people and specific uh, periods and places. Whereas the, the big sweeping narrative had, had gone out of fashion, but thankfully it's coming back in now because when you see the strands of history that, that Hawes puts together in this book, and he takes the, the story right up to the, the prime ministership of Boris Johnson, and you can see the strands going right back through the centuries and right where the where we are today, how we got here, right back to the sort of the enclosure acts in the 15th and 16th century. The first enclosure acts, there were many after that, that sort of took the land away from the people and put us on that road to where we are now with this divided class society in England. And it's, it's a book that made me cross. It's a book that made me uh, feel like I'd missed out a lot. On, I mean, I, I did a degree in history, but you know, I think... Um, certainly when I was at school the history we learned was very selective it was a very kind of I mean when I was at school Northern Ireland for example was on the news every day yet we never did Northern Ireland and the, the, the troubles or anything like that and the roots of the troubles in our history classes at school we did the causes of the first world war and the six wives of Henry VIII um, you know it, maybe it's because that the, the Northern Ireland situation came about for reasons that didn't fit in with that narrative. So uh, I think that the book does sort of set out to point out that the, 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 the govish, as, if you like, uh, version of English history that he was keen to promote when he was Secretary of State of, for Education has been keen to promote since as part of the Brexit, Brexit narrative, isn't the only narrative and it isn't necessarily the right narrative for us to follow. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was at school many years ago, but um, history was basically Hitler, Stalin, and as much as we did English stroke British history, it was the Victorians, and not a great yeah. deal beyond that. Um, I don't want to go for everything that's in the article, because uh, people should very much go out and buy a copy of the paper, but um, a real standout moment. Um, I did not know this, that um, Churchill wanted a referendum to decide whether the wartime national government should be extended, um, only for uh, Clement Attlee to object to that. I mean, that is something I've never come across before. No, me too. I mean, I, I always, you know, I grew up with that kind of narrative of history that we were taught. And when I found out that Churchill lost the election straight after the war, I was astounded. <laughs> I thought, Churchill, the man that got us through the war, that, you know, that gave us the, everything that we, we fought for and he lost the election. And it, you realise it was a lot more complicated and nuanced than that. And and Attlee was actually deputy prime minister during the war, um, the, you know, the leader of the Labour Party at the time, uh, through that kind of emergency government that was formed and Churchill wanted to extend that beyond the war um, and wanted a referendum and Attlee oh, I haven't got it to hand but there's a great quote it's in the piece about Attlee's um, uh, attitude to referendums and, and their place in, in British society and British democracy and he's not really in favour of it which you know has a clanging resonance for the reason we've got this podcast and this and this paper we both both write for as well um, so yeah it, it, there's a lot of in 
there's a lot of history in there that I should have known. I kicked myself several times through this book um, of stuff thinking, why don't I know this? Uh, and it, so it does fill in a lot of gaps. It really does. And, it, and it's a very, very good. Um, I mean, there's not a lot of nuance in the book because it is the shortest history of England. Um, so it's quite sweeping. But there's plenty in there, plenty of detail of which I wasn't aware. And I'm, I'm really glad that I know about now. Yeah, well, it sounds like an absolutely terrific read, as indeed is your article uh, in this week's New European, which is on sale in all good shops now. Thanks a lot, Charlie. Thanks, Matt. Brexiteer of the Week. Welcome back. That was fascinating. Matt with us. Not only is Matt with us our, our sort of roving reporter chatting to uh, some of the most interesting people that the New European uh, employs as writers, etc., etc. He's also the man behind the scenes who makes this podcast arrive on your phone or other device. So thank you very much, Matt, for that. Steve, it's time for Brexiteers of the Week. Charlie, Brexiteer of the Week. I'd like to uh, mention a little-known politician called Nigel Farage, first of all. Uh, Never heard of him. We spoke last week about his new financial newsletter, Fortune and Freedom with Nigel Farage. I've investigated this for my piece for the new European print edition this week. Please check it out. I particularly liked what happens is um, you get a newsletter from Nigel Farage every morning um, and it's got a lot. I mean, he's not really a financial expert, is he, Nigel Farage, despite having been a commodities trader. So you tend, it tends to have a lot of the usual ranting from Nigel Farage about this, that and the other. And then you get somebody talking about investments. Um, and uh, this week, uh, one of the ones this week said um, uh, Nigel Farage um, was ranting on about spyware on our devices, facial recognition on the streets, cancel culture in social media, political correctness in the press, groupthink in the city, uh, a dangerous reductive herd mentality sweeping through our entire culture. And you think, well, what's that got to do with investing some stocks and shares and stuff like that? And then he's one of his mates turns up, and this time it was a bloke called Rob Marstrand. And he said, um, it teed up a piece called How to Take Back Control of Your Finances in Four Simple Steps. And I thought, that sounds good. Um, Four Simple Steps to Take Back Control of My Finances. Um, and then I looked at them and they were stuff that was familiar to all of us, Richard. You and I could do this. Mm. Um, he said, you must first of all make a list of your assets, include your house and other properties, your cars, your arts, your gold and silver coins, your jewellery and your antiques, um, which I know you, I've got a lot of gold and silver coins just hanging about and art. Um, he said, cut out stuff that you don't need. Um he said, fly an economy instead of premium and sell the barely used sports car that's lurking in your garage. So, <laughs> the barely used sports car. So if you're, <laughs> if you're listening to this at home and you're a bit short, just go in your garage, look at the barely used sports car. <laughs> Maybe there's some art and gold coins behind it and you can just sell those and everything will be fine. Uh, the press is a Brexit here. Um, we're going to do a big Trump cast next week. The election, touch wood again, fingers crossed, everything crossed. It doesn't look like it's going too well for Donald Trump, apart from if you're a reader of the Daily Express online. Um, headlines in the last week have included Joe Biden on the brink as Donald Trump shows to is told he's very likely to win the US election. 
And Donald Trump-backed new polls shows overwhelming support for US president. Um, sadly for Donald Trump, the news that he's very likely to win the US election turned out to be just an interview with somebody called Sergio Montano, who is the spokesperson for Italy's Brexit party. And the poll, which showed a staggering Trump lead of 80% to 20% over Joe Biden, was just a poll of about 8,000 readers of express.co.uk, who were really unlikely to swing the big vote on November the 3rd, because of course, they all live in the UK and not the US and they can't vote at all. Um, Daniel Hannan is the, one of the Brexiteers of the week. He's the so-called brain of Brexit, Telegraph columnist. He wrote this week, after 1782, Great Britain recognised the reality of American independence and focused on agreeing strong trading ties with the new state. The EU, sadly, has been unable to make an equivalent psychological adjustment. And it's quite a rewrite of history, isn't it? Because... In 1812, Britain was at war with America. We uh, we burned down Washington, D.C., including the White House. We tried to invade New York. We tried to invade Maryland. We gave a load of arms to the Native Americans to try and cut off expansion of settlers. Um, and we imposed the Navigation Acts, which meant that um, the USA couldn't trade with British colonies like they used to be able to trade to. So I'm, Sure, not sure that um, that's quite right from Daniel Hannan. Sharks are a Brexiteer of the week. Ooh. Who's um, your favourite shark? It's uh, well, obviously the one of the the leader of the pathetic sharks in Viz is my. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, um, I like Sharky from Sharky and George. Oh, that's good. Yeah, very good. Um, um, so um, it's claimed that some of the biggest beneficiaries of Brexit will be cold-blooded, uh, dead-eyed, ruthless killers, um, not Dominic Cummings and Michael Gove. It is Jaws and his pals. The Fisheries Minister, Victoria Prentice, said in the Commons last week that when we leave the EU, it will be able to bring an end to the cruel practice of finning, um, which is hacking the fins off live sharks, um, saving them for use in Chinese soups, and then the people throw the fish back overboard and obviously the fish die uh, then. It's already illegal under EU law, um, but Prentice says that there are loads of loopholes which make it unenforceable. It sounds like something we would want to stop. And uh, she says we can do that when we join the WTO. The only problem with this, um, I've discovered, is that if one country in the WTO objects to something that other countries suggest, um, then it, it goes. It's, it's, there's a single country veto um, and it will remain unfinished, as they say. And uh, as they almost say in the Steven Spielberg classic movie, she's going to need a bigger vote. Uh, the Brexiteer of the week this week, though, is Steve Baker. Um, former leader of the ERG, the European Research Group. Remember them, they, they didn't really like Europe and they didn't seem to do much research. He has now turned his analytical skills to the church. He accused Arch, archbishops opposing the internal market bill of sowing <laughs> division where they might have promoted unity. And he wrote, perhaps the prime minister ought to move to a paving motion on the disestablishment of the Church of England. Well, I mean, thank goodness he's not overreacting. Is this just a ruse um, so Jacob Rees-Mogg can say anti-disestablishmentarianism in the House of Commons and then grin like his nanny's special big boy? Is it what the Tories had in mind all along when they talked about using Henry VIII powers? How long is it going to be before Boris Johnson starts shouting, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? 
And how long will it be, in fact, before Ian Botham is named the new Archbishop of Canterbury? Absolutely absurd war on the church, bashing of the bishops. Steve Baker, Brexiteer of the Week. Congratulations, Steve. I don't think it's the first time he's been our Brexiteer of the Week, and I doubt no, it will he be. Seemed to, he seemed to be getting more sensible of late, mm. didn't he, Steve Baker? I think the other week we were saying how sensible he'd been about something, and this is just ludicrous, isn't it? Strange times. What should the listener do? People we disagree with. Um, <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast, it was very long, but we enjoyed it. <laughs> it was. Please subscribe to us. Leave us a nice review. It really makes a difference. Please buy the new European print edition. Three pounds in shops now. Two uh, deals for you on the new European website. You can get 13 issues of the print edition for 25 quid. That's a saving of 14 pounds. Uh, over six months, you can get a rolling subscription of £6 a month for three months, then £8 a month thereafter. That saves you at least four quid a month. Do you know what, Steve? Go on. That is the same price as Netflix. Yeah, it's nothing. It's nothing. Get on there. Just go into your garage, sell that old <laughs> car... Get your painting out, your old Picasso that you just threw in there. There's all the gold coins behind it and jewellery. You know, just spend that on the subscription to the New European. Or you can go to tneshop.co.uk, buy a New European face mask. Please join our Facebook readers group. Uh, Please follow us on Twitter at The New European. You can also follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. If you'd like to send me Picassos, I can sort you out a subscription. Um, just tap me up on Twitter. My DMs are open. Is that a thing? I don't even know. You yeah. can follow me on Twitter as well. And you'll leave on it. <laughs> Sorry, it's not a Giuliani um, moment here. I am fully tucked in. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Porrit, P-O-R-R-I-T-T. This has been a mammoth uh, saga of a podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. We certainly did. Thank you so much to Charlie Connolly, to Matt Withers, uh, to Liz Gerard, um, and of course to the wonderful Steve Anglesey. We will be back next week. Until then, Mr. Campbell, please play your bagpipes. Here you go. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 